On this week's episode of the Totally Sort of Podcast, we've both seen movies. Chris is going to let you know what he thought of a unique horror flick called The Ritual, while I saw Disney's latest big screen offering, based on the classic sci-fi novel Wrinkle in Time. I use this week's Song Exploder podcast as an excuse to talk about Black Panther again, delving into the creation of its amazing musical score. We talk about what we like about Joe Abercrombie and the universe he has created, and Chris talks about his book of short stories, Sharp Ends. We have a little bit of news from the world of comic book movies arising out of our discussion of Thor Ragnarok in an earlier episode, and Chris answers my take-home top three challenge with his favorite Late Night with David Letterman comedy segments. Welcome to Totally Sort of, the podcast. It's sort of like a review show and totally like catching up with your best friend. I'm Chris. And I'm Darren. We'll tell you what you totally need to check out and what is sort of worth skipping. Sounds like a good plan. So uh, how's your week? Anything uh, cool to share with us? I have something cool, but also uh, somewhat potentially controversial, but Uh I'm going to dive right into it anyways. Okay. Uh, This week, I... Took a day off work while my kids were on March break and went to Snakes and Lattes. So this is the uh, the kind of first and biggest and best gaming cafe in Toronto? It is, and sort of internationally or at least North America-wide recognized as sort of being a, a blueprint for how you do a board game cafe. And I've been going for years. I think they opened in 2010 and it was probably not long after that, that I started going there regularly. And uh, I've always had a great time. I've always had a good time with the kids. And I don't know, not, not being from Toronto, have you seen the Snakes and Lattes controversy? Uh, no, I didn't realize there was a controversy. I thought maybe the controversy was that you took the day off work. <laughs> no, not controversial at all. The Snakes and Lattes controversy comes out about as a result of a posting that uh, someone made on Facebook a couple weeks ago, which was that uh, he and a woman went to Snakes and Lattes and were denied alcohol service. Okay. And the complaint at its highest comes to, if you believe everything that's in the complaint, and uh, I'm trying to be accepting and except possibilities. Sure. But the suggestion was that because he was black and she was a non-English speaker, they refused to serve them alcohol. And when you read the complaint, it comes out at its highest that because she had a very thick uh, South American accent, the server believed she was impaired and declined to serve her alcohol. Hmm. And he wrote a lengthy diatribe on Facebook, which was... Not ranty, but when you end your uh, your complaint against a establishment on Facebook with the hashtag, I'm sorry, I can't serve you, I'm racist, and then you also hashtag CBC News, City TV, Global News, and Black Lives Matter Toronto, my suspicion is that you're looking for more attention than complaining about a legitimate complaint. 
that being said, if you accept everything that this person said, it amounts to a inexperienced server mistook somebody's non-English uh, accent for slurred speech and impairment and declined to serve them alcohol. At its worst, if you accept all that, at least in my opinion, that is not racism. You may call it cultural insensitivity based on naivety and inexperience, but hmm. that is not the same thing as racism. And what has resulted is a spew of reviews on Facebook where people say, oh, so Snakes and Lattes is racist now. Did wow. you hear Snakes and Lattes is racist? So Snakes and Lattes apologizes, and it's not a fall on our sword, we're sorry our server was racist and we fired them. It was, they made an a, a estimation of impairment based on what they observed. We apologize if you felt discriminated against. This is an open and accepting location. Uh, we are certainly sorry that you felt that way. Well, that, of course, is not enough of an apology. So it's just a slew of people saying that that apology is crap. And, you know, and then, of course, the boycott snakes and lattes thing comes up. And I went to snakes and lattes this week because, in my estimation, even taking the complaint at its highest, that does not amount to racism, in my opinion. Wow. Well, that's crazy. I hadn't heard about that. It's unfortunate how easy it is for one little incident to just get so much attention. And it's really got to be tough to be in the service industry just for that kind of thing. Absolutely. And just to see the how easy it is then for people to jump on the wagon, on the bandwagon in their responding posts, which just seem to, a lot of them are no indication they've actually even read either this person's original post or Snakes and Latte's apology. It's just, hey, I hear this place is racist as well. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, scary. Hmm. Well, Hopefully they weren't really being racist and hopefully... Uh... I mean, I have to say in all of the times I've been there, their clientele looks like the multicultural city that Toronto is. Yeah. Their staff looks like the multicultural city that Toronto is. So if there's some deep-seated racism, you would think it would have a hard time subsisting in that culture, but... I really don't know anything more about it, and I haven't read either of those posts, so I probably shouldn't comment on it myself. All right. Uh, how about yourself? Anything you did interesting this week? Uh, well, this was kind of a, a monumental week. Uh, my wife, Jen, and I saved the world. Oh, literally, or...? Uh... Well, we finished our, our campaign of Pandemic Legacy. Oh, very nice. Yeah. I have not managed to accomplish that feat yet. <laughs> I have to say, it for people who don't know, um, Pandemic Legacy is basically a campaign-style version of the cooperative board game Pandemic. So uh, Pandemic's a game where you basically you go around the world um, trying to treat different diseases and save the world from outbreaks of, of serious diseases. And the Legacy version, which is pretty awesome, and you've been playing it for a while too, right? I have. Uh, it basically sort of adds a story mode to a board game so you get to play month after month different things happen um, and the story evolves and decisions you make and the results of your previous game carry over into the next game it's it's a pretty awesome evolution of a already good game 
Yeah, my kids, my kids favorite thing about the game is the points where it tells you to rip up a card yeah. or where you get to do some permanent uh, destructive aspect to the board itself, either by writing on it or putting stickers on it. But mostly ripping up cards is their favorite part. <laughs> that is pretty fun, but it's crazy. The the first time you go to do it, it just feels so wrong. Like like it really is is like a taboo, and you're like, oh, should I do this? Do I really? You want to be really sure. But anyways, so yeah, tearing up cards is fun. But uh, we've been playing since I think maybe not quite a year, maybe since the spring. But the last few weeks, um, we kind of got close to the end and decided we were really gonna go hard and. Um, had some good luck and came out with a very good finish. I won't, I won't spoil the ending for you, but... Well, you've uh, done better than us because, uh, we've done it at the cottage the last two years and we basically managed to do four months per, um, session at the cottage. So we're eight months in and it's been two years and it probably looks like we won't get to the last four months until the cottage again this year. So it will have taken us almost three years to do it. Wow. Well, anyways, it'll be a, it'll be a good time when you get there. Uh, it ended up just as strong as it started. And uh, for anybody who's kind of hemmed and hot about this thing or wondered about it, I wholeheartedly recommend it. This was such an amazing game. Uh, they managed to tweak the basic formula, but still keep it like a nail biter tight win or lose. It's always really close. Um, really, really good, good fun. Yeah, I think there's a reason why Pandemic Legacy is sort of considered the prototype for legacy games. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I've uh, I don't want to get too too deep and nerdy on the the legacy board game thing, but I've played a bunch of them. Um, and they're so far they've almost all been designed by the same guy. And the interesting thing is that so far it seems like when they've layered the legacy idea on top of an existing board game it works great and when they try and come up with a new board game that works as a legacy game it's not been good at all so just something interesting to see if that sort of trend continues as this uh i'm sure there will be a lot more legacy games to come they're actually talking about doing uh, a legacy version of betrayal at house on the hill which is kind of a neat game yeah have to see where that goes all right, I think we should probably move into our main segment, which is My Week in Geek. I went and saw Wrinkle in Time today. Okay, so how was A Wrinkle in Time? Uh, have you read the book? I have not. I was talking to somebody about this. It's a book that was in our house. I remember it had really fantastic, interesting cover art, and it was sci-fi. So I should have read it, but I never read it as a kid. Strangely enough, I'm in the exact same situation <laughs> in that it seems like something that I should have read, and it was something that I'd been aware of, but also something that I had never read. I saw the movie today sort of fresh without having read the book. Yep. So the book is uh, by Madeline Longell. It was written in 1960 and was a Newbery Award winner, and this is the uh, Disney movie adaptation of it. Uh, directed by Ava DuVernay. I quite enjoyed it as a fantasy story. Mm -hmm. It's uh, visually really, really pretty. And it's got an interesting story. I kind of got the sense, and I'm speaking without a full knowledge because I haven't read the book, mm -hmm. that there are probably a lot of things that were uh, left 
summarily touched upon in the movie that might be more deeply explained in the book because I was left with a lot of questions about things. So there's not a lot of background to the characters. There's not really an in-depth explanation of the whole mythology that's going on in the film. So... So let me ask you, because I, I haven't read the book. I've seen the trailers, but that's about it. I haven't read any reviews. What kind of tone does it strike? Like, does it feel like a, a Disney, like a, a family movie, or is it a little more serious than that? It is uh, a Disney family film. I would say it okay. fits pretty firmly into that. But there is a, a darker... Uh, undercurrent to it and there is a little more complexity to the sort of standard disney story that sort of everything wraps up and everything sort of resolves uh it's yeah i would say it's a disney family film with more depth okay i found oprah winfrey although there was nothing wrong with her acting she was she was fine in it. She's such a larger-than-life figure just in and of herself that it's kind of hard to get past who she is to see her as another character. Hard to see her as anything other than Oprah. For some reason, they chose to do different uh, makeup with her than they did with the other of the three misses. Hmm. And so they all had sort of more subtle makeup effects. And then on her, they put these sort of gaudy beads and glitter all over her face. And I found that a little distracting. <laughs> it wasn't enough to make you realize it wasn't Oprah, though, eh? No, it wasn't. <laughs> and some of the, and again, because I haven't read the book, some of the use of language in the in the movie is really nice. I don't know if it comes right from the book, but just... Uh, by way of example, they're they're having this talk about uh, the the brother and the sister Meg and Charles Wallace are having a talk about why they need to bring this other guy with them on the adventure. And Charles Wallace says to his sister, "We need him for diplomacy." And she says, "Why do we need diplomacy?" And he looks at her and says, "The fact that you have to ask that question <laughs> is the very reason we need to bring him along." And I just thought it was a really nice play on their yeah. interaction. Cool. I quite enjoy. I thought it was well written. Yeah. Uh, generally, you know, it was fun. How about you? Have you seen anything from the big screen or big screen reduced to small screen? So yeah. So this weekend we pulled up something new on Netflix called The Ritual, and really all we knew about it was that it looked like a spooky movie and it was new. And I love going into a horror movie with really with very limited information. So I love when I get a chance to see a horror movie that I don't know anything about. And this was a fantastic example of why that is so effective. So um, basically in the ritual, you get your standard kind of setup of a bunch of friends go off on a hike in an isolated place and bad things start to happen. But there are a couple of reasons why this was uh, just worked so well one thing that was awesome was the setting was just something a little bit different and i think as we've established from previous episodes uh i'm afraid of the woods (laughs) so yeah i think that we had we got into that quite deeply with the blair witch project so so the setting really worked um i love when a horror movie can keep it ambiguous as to are we dealing with something supernatural is this just um something psychological in is this just in the heads of the the characters but they really 
managed to keep that part ambiguous and mysterious for quite a while. Um, and I'm going to get a little spoilery here, so if anybody intends to watch this movie, I'm just going to leave it there and say this is a nice, tight horror movie. It comes in at, like, barely an hour and a half, and it's well worth seeing. If you don't mind spoilers, then I'm going to continue. If you don't want it to be spoiled, skip ahead for a couple of minutes. Okay, so, spoiler territory, um, it turns out to be a bit of a monster movie. Oh, nice. The awesome thing is that generally with monster movies, it's sort of a game as to how long can you put off revealing the monster, right? Because once you do, it's never quite as scary. Right. You have to show them in shadows and uh, hidden out of the way for quite some time before you actually get the reveal. Yeah. And once you get the reveal, it's usually kind of like, okay, but that's that kind of, you've kind of lost something once you can actually see it. The creature that they face in this movie is so friggin' weird and alien and nasty that it doesn't detract from it. Um, it's just a really cool example of good filmmaking that they can actually show you the monster and it doesn't lose any any of the scare factor. Since we're deeply into the spoiler section of this particular review, yeah, was the fact that it was going to be a monster movie something that was hidden for most of the film and were you uh did it did that twist catch you when it was revealed i kind of thought it might have been but it's sort of um okay i didn't know whether this was going to be maybe some crazy people in the woods or whether one of the characters has some real guilt and trauma going on and he has some sort of flashbacks and you kind of wonder if He's the main point of view in the movie, and you wonder if really maybe he's acting out, maybe he's just hallucinating. So you really don't know, but uh, there is some there is some evil shit going on in the Scandinavian woods. It's it's a cool little movie. All right, I think that takes us to the point where I have to apologize for the next segment because I recognize. H- hang that... on, hang on, I gotta interrupt. Have you come up with another excuse to drag out and repeat on the fact that I have not seen Black Panther yet? I have, in fact. <laughs> and my apology was that I'm. it's really not my intention to turn this into a Black Panther podcast. Sure, sure. I, I saw this in the show notes. And uh, yeah. Anyways, continue. All right. So I did, however, see Black Panther for a third time this week. <laughs> so I'm going to call that score... Darren three Chris nothing okay yeah but this has not as not so much to do with the movie because but it does herald back to a podcast which I spoke about a couple of episodes ago called Song Exploder okay yeah see this was my way to tie a previous podcast a current movie and to mock you as well for having not seen Black Panther all into one segment that's a trifecta very nice so I spoke about Song Exploder a while ago. This is uh, Hirakesh Hirway's podcast in which he has people on and they break down a song. Yeah. And so I listened to it this week and it happened to be a Swedish composer by the name of Ludwig Ludwig Goransson okay. who did the original score for Black Panther. Hmm. And he came on with uh, one particular piece from the score, which is Killmonger's theme song. From the movie, Killmonger being the main villain in the Black Panther movie. Okay. And then broke down 
how he came up with this particular piece. And it's a very, very cool piece. And the breakdown just got me really excited about uh, the creativity that goes into this. When you, when you hear him talk about how he brought all these elements together, it was one of those... Yeah, this is why these people are really, really talented and get to do this for a living. Because uh, the Swedish composer Ludwig Göransson was at uh, USC Film School with Ryan Coogler and has scored all of his student films and all of his uh, screen adaptations. Neat. But he also works with uh, a bunch of other people, including being a uh, hip-hop producer for Childish Gambino, among others. And so he brings a very wide variety of background to this stuff. Yeah. And the Killmonger piece is just a fantastic example of this mix. And so he talks about meeting this uh, African flute player for this sort of traditional African uh, Fula flute from Senegal and hearing this guy play. And he tells a story about uh, hearing this guy play and talking through his translator, trying to explain to this traditional African flute player what it was he was doing and what he was looking for and eventually managed to explain, basically explains this is the villain in a movie and he gives him the name Killmonger and then talks about this guy starts playing the flute and he plays this like building, building, building rhythm. And then he puts down the flute and starts screaming, Killmonger, Killmonger, Killmonger. And he said, you know, I knew that I had the starting of what I wanted to make. And so he took these samples. And then the the other point beyond the level of creativity that goes into this is the scope of what goes into even just the score to a, to a movie. Because... Mm-hmm. Then he goes, takes these sounds back to his studio in Los Angeles, start gets them all mixed down to something that he likes the sound of. Then he goes to Abbey Road Studios in London, where he works with a 92-piece orchestra and a 40-piece choir to then put the rest together. And when you listen to the song, it's just this incredible mix of these various uh, elements piled on top of each other. So it it starts with uh, a gradual build into this flute with strings and harp and then it kicks into because part of Killmonger's backstory is he is an grows up in Oakland so it kicks into this low bass beat and then moves into like a a rap beat in the background layered over all of this stuff and that was just hearing him talk about why all that stuff comes from his background and why it's in the song was really cool and then he goes to the particular um, repeating rhythm that runs through the song and said, so if you listen to it, it's done in Killmonger's song with strings and this flute. And then he takes you to T'Challa's uh, theme song. And it's the same repeating rhythm through his song, but it's done in big brass sounds and mm-hmm. really, uh, really big and royal so then he said and if you then go to like when they go to visit the ancestral plane in the movie well it's their joint ancestors and so when you listen to that song you hear the intermingling of the flute and strings version with the big brassy version in the same song so then i went and listened to the 
soundtrack because you can you can now stream yeah uh the original score to listen for all those things and i was it just it got me really excited and then i thought i wish i'd done this before i saw it for the third time because now <laughs> i want to see it a fourth time but i may wait until it's available at home yeah i, I have a great appreciation for uh soundtracks and scores and actually i love working to uh to soundtrack music especially uh and i'm it's cool i'm looking forward to checking this guy out because i think a lot of the marvel movies have used the same couple of composers i know like Hans zimmer has been in a bunch of them and um yeah and alan silvestri who's done a lot of the music for avengers and and uh i think some of the captain america movies um really good stuff but i'm excited to hear somebody new in the mix and uh, another excuse for me to check out uh, song exploder and to See Black Panther. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for keeping that running. Good luck with episode four of Chris Hasn't Seen Black Panther coming next week. <laughs> Did you want to talk about a uh, comic or book you read this week? Yeah, so um, this week I, I picked up, I, I bought it a while ago, but I finally started reading a collection of short stories by Joe Abercrombie. Oh, you told me about this book a while ago. Yeah, so um, I think we're both solid uh, fans of Joe Abercrombie, but for people who don't know, he's a fantasy writer. Um, he's been writing for about 10 years, um, and his books, uh, I, I'm just, he's one of my absolute favorite authors. He He writes in a world that seems like your standard kind of European fantasy setting. But there are a bunch of things that really set him apart. One thing is that the world itself is an interesting world, and it's not quite what you'd expect. Um, he, When he pushes out into the corners of the world, for example, in Red Country, uh, he basically transforms what you're used to uh, reading about as like a kind of swords and sorcery European setting into a Western, and somehow it works. Um, so he does things like that with his world that are very cool. Um, he also writes really cinematically. I feel like he's somebody who totally grew up watching movies and TV. And when I read his stuff, it comes across like a screenplay. Like I can see everything that he writes. Yeah. The, the world itself is very much like, uh, the way Martin's worlds are written in that there are very different regions of the world. Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, the people come from different parts of the world and people have racial slurs for each other and things like that that just make it really kind of uh, realistic. But that kind of leads into, I think, the absolute standout thing that makes his writing so great is the characters and the dialogue. Um, he really writes fantasy as if it was uh, a Quentin Tarantino piece or a Guy Ritchie piece. There's a lot of crime a lot of swearing, a lot of violence, and just the bickering and the, the, the character dialogue in these things is just so good. Whenever I'm reading Joe Abercrombie, like every page has something that I want to like highlight or cut out or paste on post on Facebook or do something like just like, oh, that's the perfect line. That's hilarious. Or that's there's just so many of those moments. So I also like uh, what I think about in reading his stuff being uh, what I would call the low or middle class or working class sensibility in that the highborn mm -hmm. 
and the upper class almost never do well in any of his stories. Yeah, there's something to that. There's there's like I I think just a kind of a squalor too. Um and especially when he writes about armies and battles. Um I think it's not new or recent for our for our authors to kind of get into how gory and horrible wars were. Well, you know, when you talk about people hacking hacking each other apart with swords, it's not all glamour. Um but, Were you thinking about Heroes, where he does that battle, which is just going from one scene of like death and dismemberment to the next w- with multiple perspectives? It's not even the carnage that strikes me. It's, I don't know if he has a history background or what, but it's, it's how dirty and, and sick and tired and pointless all army life seemed to be. So, you know, in between the battles, it's all about just trying to move people from one place to another and about the wagons breaking down and getting stuck in the mud and everything being filthy. And there's just, it it's just, uh, it's really a refreshing kind of gutter level view of a fantasy world. So this collection, Sharp Ends, it's uh, set in that same world. And some of the characters in the short stories are characters that we've met before, and it's maybe little slices of their past. Uh, but there are also kind of some new characters, some of whom are really interesting. And uh, it's just rounding out that world even more. But it was just, uh, it's, I just got sucked right back into his world and, and how much I love his writing. And I want to quote every little piece of it. Yeah, I like his writing. I like his universe. And when... I did the Take Home Top 3 last uh, a couple of episodes ago about things I'd like to see make, made into movies or film of some sort. It was, I think, the next runner-up to my choices because it would be really nice to see. Yeah, there are certain pieces that he can do over and over again, and I never get tired of them. And one of them is the kind of the band of thieves or warriors and the way they bicker and get ready for a fight. You know, he's put that in three or four stories and books now, but it's it never gets old. It's just he can create such a great cast of characters and really bring them to life and make you care about them before they all get killed in terrible ways. <laughs> so yeah, the book is Sharp Ends by Joe Abercrombie, and if you're uh, an Abercrombie fan, then I highly recommend it. If you're new to Joe Abercrombie, I recommend you go back to his very first novel, which is The Blade Itself, and a great start and introduction to his world and his characters. Yeah, I can't uh, dispute that everybody should go check it out, because I love his books too. Okay, uh, do we want to move into some news? I wanted to do one uh, piece of news, because it goes back to something we talked about last week. Last week we talked about Thor Ragnarok. Yeah. And one of the things that you said you liked about it was the uh, Jack Kirby sort of appearance to the universe mm-hmm. they created in Thor Ragnarok. Well, uh, Ava DuVernay, who I spoke about earlier, she was the director of Wrinkle in Time, mm-hmm. has apparently signed on with DC to do a New Gods movie. Wow, that's out there. They apparently went to her and asked her, like, what uh, we'd like you to do a film for us. What would you like to do in, like, comics world? Yeah. And she said, New Gods. 
Cool. Well, uh, it is apparently in development. That's exciting. I wonder how out there they'll go with the uh, the look and feel of it, because that's something that, you know, as much as we are in a golden age of of comic book movies, there's a lot of samey sameness to them, especially in terms of the visuals. And I would love to see somebody come in and do something just totally out there, like, you know, like the that would have the impact, like when um, 300 came out. And that was really just kind of made everybody do a double take in terms of, wow, this looks not like anything we've seen before. I think there's still a lot of that yet to come and bring it on. Yep, I'd like to see something new and exciting. Time for the take-home top three. So last week, I gave you a very specific for Chris task of coming back to us with your top three uh, skits or moments from the original Late Night with David Letterman run on TV. And let's see what you've come up with for us. All right. Well, this was a blessing and a curse. This was some fun homework. It turns out that there are lots and lots of Letterman clips on YouTube, which is great because I couldn't have remembered all of this myself. But it meant I was watching Letterman all week. And it's amazing. I, I really have to uh, tip my hat to some of these YouTubers who are, I don't know where they're finding this footage, but not just finding great clips, but like assembling all of the specific themed or series into, you know, big, long, like you can get an hour long montage of stupid pet tricks or, you know, it's it's quite the quite the rabbit hole if you want to go down there. It's so nice that people are documenting and preserving all of this stuff for ease of access. It's awesome. It really is. So I had a tough time narrowing it down to three things. So I, I kind of have, I have my three things, but they're really just kind of representative of the types of stuff and bits that he did. So at number three, I have Flunky the Clown. Nice. So for anyone who doesn't remember, Flunky was one of the uh, the writers, uh, the late night show writers, Jeff Martin. And I, I think it was a throwaway bit, but it was so good that they just kept bringing him back over and over. And he basically was just a disgruntled, not funny, not happy clown, smoking, swearing, clearing his throat a lot, and uh, just sharing horrible, horrible anecdotes. There were, it's representative of the couple of things that Letterman did with comedy. One was just a, a throwaway bit that worked, and so it came back over and over yeah. again. And others were bits that didn't work, but he would keep coming back to them <laughs> over and over again until it yeah. started to become funny. Yeah, that was, uh, yeah, it was just repeat it until it's funny, whether it was funny to start with or not. For sure. Yeah, I had a hard time. I, you know, I really wanted to get some Chris Elliott in there. I loved Chris Elliott, but there was no one piece, although uh, the regulator guy was, was close, but... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, somebody, you gotta, some, somebody should check out regulator guy. Yeah. That was excellent. But so, yeah, so Flunky the Clown was my pick for uh, the character humor. Uh, the second thing, um, and I think, I really think Letterman completely pioneered this. Now, somebody could prove me wrong. There might have been other shows that did this. But the whole just destroying things on camera in slow-mo, I don't think anybody had really done it the way Letterman did it. And yep. um, so there are various versions of this. There's the dropping things off a tower. There's the rolling over things with the steamroller. There's crushing things in a giant vice. 
but whatever he's doing, there's just this combination of just the dumb juvenile appeal of seeing things get destroyed, which is fun. Uh, Absolutely. And he, he mixes that in with getting like people to make requests. So you have that kind of staged man on the street interview. And so you have these little clips of someone saying, how about something from Star Wars? And then you'll see him dropping something from Star Wars off a tower. But the dropping things off a tower was absolutely my favorite of all of those. Right on. So I have a particular one of those that I loved. Yeah. There's one where the exact thing that you're talking about, there was a request. And the request was, how about something from Greek mythology? <laughs> and then they show a clip oh, yes. of Letterman on the roof of the building with fluorescent <laughs> lighting tubes. And he says, I'm Zeus hurling lightning bolts down on the hapless peasantry. <laughs> and he starts throwing the uh, the fluorescent tubes down. Yeah, that was great. And I, he's such a doofus himself, too, that just the, the combination of like the really bad dialogue that went in into framing all those things that was so much fun okay so my all-time favorite though really the segment the type of segment that i'm representing here is just dave wandering around being a dick to people <laughs> just like making really idiotic comments and so when uh when they moved to the ed sullivan theater and had rupert g as his neighbor the best is when he took Rupert G, gave him a headset, and just sent him out on missions to parrot things that Dave was saying to him through this hidden microphone, and just had Rupert annoying people. Yeah, the the idea that he was just this walking, almost puppet, yeah. and he would just say whatever Dave said into the headphones, and people would just respond, and, and Dave would just... Uh, he sometimes he would just ignore what they were saying and just tell them to keep going ahead with what yeah. you're doing. Sometimes he had comebacks. Yeah, that was great. Dave wasn't like just sort of harassing mean. He was just more like obnoxiously stupid and just forcing someone else to do that. Like Rupert was just this hilarious character in that he wasn't a, a funny person in terms of he wasn't a comedian. He didn't tell jokes, but he just had a funny demeanor and he was really agreeable. And the best thing is, in, in researching this, um, I saw an interview with Rupert when Dave retired, and they were asking Rupert, what was it like to work with him all these years? And he, he basically said, I hated being on camera. I never wanted to be on camera. All these years, every segment, I, I hated it. Like, not that I didn't want the publicity and it was great for my business, but he was just so uncomfortable being on camera, but he was such a trooper. And when you see him going into McDonald's and asking for uh, a quarter pounder and a half pounder and a three quarter pounder <laughs> and, and a five pounder and getting told no and then saying, can I have 20 quarter pounders so I can make my own five pounder? <laughs> like, it was just, that was just a great, great segment. So I had a lot of fun going down the rabbit hole on Letterman and uh, we'll put up links in the show notes to, uh, to several of these, but uh, for, for people who didn't watch Letterman back in the eighties, um, some of it looks pretty dated, but he really introduced so much uh, comedy to TV that is kind of taken for granted now and has been repeated many, many times. But uh, yeah, he did a lot of this stuff first. So I know I've been drawing this out a bit with my own interjections, but uh, how hard was it to not include any of the dressed in a suit, dunked in something, or 
done something to me in a suit uh, episodes. That was a great kind of category as well. But I think I couldn't find a single one that stood out for me. Uh, but yeah, the Velcro suit, the magnet suit, the Rice Krispie suit. It was actually my recollection of one of those particular uh, segments that got me to okay. the, uh, the topic for you. And it was the suit full of bags of potato chips and then dunking them in a giant vat of onion dip. And it, it's not that that's particularly hilarious, but there was this point where they dunk him down into the onion dip and where it sort of hits his waist and he goes, ooh, and then they lift him up and he goes, no, no, points back down, like put me back down again. And then just sort of goes, oh, as his like sort of groin gets suspended in the onion dip, that it was that part uh, of that bit that like I still remember it as like just killing me. Yeah, yeah. Good times. Well, I I appreciate the assignment, my friend. All right. Do you have an assignment for me for next time? Yeah, so this one is a, a little more open-ended. We can talk about movies or TV here. And what we're looking at, and this kind of ties back to the Black Panther piece, it's three movies or TV shows that were totally made for you by the music. So a movie or a TV show that the music totally did it for you. So it could be a scene or it could be a, sh a show that did it you know, week after week or a movie that the, where the music just moves you and totally took it to another level for you. Are you really going to leave me an opening to talk about Black Panther again next week? <laughs> I, I think we've covered Black Panther. I'll, I'll take it as a given that the topic as presented was excluding Black yeah. Panther. Exactly. I appreciate that. Although I will look forward to your attempt to drag Black Panther into another episode next week. Well, I think that's about all the time we've got for this week. You can catch us every Wednesday at totallysortof.com or find us in the Podbean app on iTunes or in the Google Play Store. We'd love to hear from you, so leave a comment or hit us up on Twitter or Instagram at totallysortof or email us at hello at totallysortof.com. Even better, leave a rating or review on the iTunes or the Google Store. Our intro song is Punk and is used by kind permission from the artist Kabana Black. You can check out the show notes for links on everything we talked about. Until next time, I'm Darren Hogan. And I'm Chris McInnes. And you've been listening to Totally Sort Of, the podcast. Talk to you later, buddy. You bet, pal.